Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. We are here with Michael O'Connell, truly a visionary of interfaith dialogue and his work as the former rector of the Basilica of St. Mary and of Ascension. It is just amazing to see what he has done in interfaith work and he and I were colleagues for many years, and so I am thrilled to welcome him to our podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi, Rabbi. I'm really uh, grateful to uh, be with you and with my friends at Temple. Uh, and I say that very heartfelt, in a very heartfelt way because I've had uh, almost a 30-year history with Temple. And uh, it's framed... In many ways, it's really framed who I am, uh, certainly humanly, from just the opportunity to meet so many incredible people, uh, but spiritually, because uh, uh, I can't possibly, I cannot possibly think of myself as a, a Christian uh, unless I at the same time understand that whatever that means, it is fundamentally rooted in Judaism. And uh, I cannot, it's just simply impossible to be able to think of my Christian faith and who Jesus is without remember, without understanding that uh, he was a Jew. Uh, he was a Galilean Jew. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he, he was clueless about uh, Catholics and Protestants and uh, Muslims, so on and so forth. Uh, he was uh, he was born a Galilean Jew. He died one. Uh, his mind, his heart, his body, and his soul was framed in that reference. And so <clears throat> that's why I feel so close to the Jewish community. Thank you for inviting me, Rabbi. We really appreciate all that you do and your courage. It You have spoken out at times and and if you could just give to our listeners like that incredible journey that you've taken um, in your own family when you arrived at the Basilica, all of those aspects, we would love to share that with our listeners. Okay, well, uh, as you know, I'm, I don't know that you know this exactly, but I'm seven eighths Irish, so you got to <laughs> shut me up. Uh, <laughs> let's put it this way, the roots of my understanding uh, of why why Judaism is important, knowing Judaism is important, uh, uh, goes back to, I would date it somewhere in probably in the 50s when I was a teenager, the oldest of six kids, Catholic kids, uh, we grew up in St. Paul, and our, our Catholic faith was, was important to us. Uh, starting in third grade, I went to uh, Catholic grade school, high school, college, graduate school. Uh, a, a little bit of background in terms of my family. Uh, my dad was born in Hastings, Minnesota. 
and he grew up in Hastings, Minnesota until the time that he went to the University of Minnesota back in the 30s. He did not, best I remember, he did not know any Jewish people until he went to college. And so you understand that somebody was born in, in 2000, in 1916, you know, just flat out was an anti-Semite. I don't think, I don't think there's anything he thought about in a great deal. Uh, it's just the, it's just kind of the environment that he picked up probably mostly in the Navy, but I wouldn't doubt he picked it up uh, in college too, uh, in the, in the, in the thirties. So he had all the jokes, the uh, Jewish jokes and, um, things like that. And, and he, he had friends that, that that's how they talk. Well, the, the background of our family is that my, my grandfather, my mother's father, he had been become a part of a, an organization in the 1930s in St. Paul called the National Conference of Christians and Jews. He was part of that. I think the origin of that for the most part was that Jewish people were feeling very, very uh, vulnerable uh, given what was going on in Germany and uh, and wanting to get allies uh, in and so was not an anti-Semite uh, and he was actually very aware of what's going on in Germany at the time in the 30s and very very aware of the evil that was coming into the world with Father Coughlin who was a priest uh, from Detroit who had a radio program it was said that on a summer afternoon in the late 30s, you could walk down the street of any city in the United States and you didn't have to have a radio. You could hear it. You could hear a show coming through the windows out in the street. He started out, um, interestingly, uh, as, a, as, as a, a real uh, uh, prophet in social justice in the early 30s in this show. But he became a, a, a raging anti-Semite by the end of the 30s. And, he, and that was, was part of this whole deal. And my grandfather was aware of that. The, the practical part of that is, is that whenever he was around in our house, my father knew to, knew to keep his mouth shut. That dynamic, I remember. I didn't quite get it, but I clearly remembered it. Uh, I, I would have to say that that... that from the early 70s until 1990, about the time I went to the Basilica, when I read Constantine's Sword, mm -hmm. which is to me one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, James Carroll wrote it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's spoken at Temple. He did. I didn't know who he was, and um, the St. Thomas brought him. And yeah. like thousands of people arrived, and I was yeah. like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. I sat in the sanctuary and listened to him and was just blown out of the water. Like I was just like, oh my God, to hear him speak about and acknowledge um, the anti-Semitism that has been centered in, in the church and be a believer, you know, one yeah. who does still feels connected. It was just this unbelievable thing experience and role modeling I had never, ever witnessed. It was amazing. Well, see, he, he was a Catholic priest. Um, I know. And I think he's within two or three years of my age. Huh. And um, he left ministry and he's teaching at Harvard. And um, he, uh, Constantine Sword essentially 
is a, a Christian scholar like him who happened to have been a priest, mm-hmm. well-educated from that point of view. He's peeling the onion of 2000 years mm-hmm. and he's going all the way back to the Christian gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's basically telling you the story. He's telling Christians a story about the roots of anti-Semitism and that they do go back to the four gospels, actually two, especially two of the four gospels. Yeah. yeah. And, and in a, you know, for me, and I'm, he took it through 2000 years. And uh, for me, I mean, I it was mind blowing. And that was the thing that really turned me around. And it was uh, in the early 90s that, that I had that. In fact, there's a, there's a story about that. Um, he, I think back around 93 or how did that work? No. No, yeah, maybe 93. I, I had been in Boston and I had a flight to get and I was sitting down in Harvard Square having a cigar. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, cigars went out the back door when my wife came in the front door. But There you go. There you go. A good thing. A good, <laughs> a good thing. Two good somebody developments. Said, <laughs> somebody said to me, why didn't you give them up? I said, well, they're expensive. They're not healthy. And they are they smell bad. But other than that, I don't know why I gave it up. <laughs> When you're talking to an Irishman, if he's any good, he remembers where these conversations started and he can get back to them. So (laughs) I'm sitting in Harvard Square having a cigar. It's a lovely afternoon, probably got two hours to kill, three hours to kill before my flight. I'm sitting there and this conversation is right behind me. I don't look, I don't see him, but I know it's James Carroll. Oh, wow. I've never heard I, this story. Yeah. I, I, why do I know it's James Carroll? Because he wrote, this is really interesting. He wrote an article in the New Yorker that preceded the book by about a year. And I had read the article in the New Yorker and the perp that he was talking to a graduate student, you know, counseling him and whatever. And he said to this guy as a Catholic priest, former Catholic priest and as a, as a, as a Christian, he said, I had to deal with the Catholics teaching on the pro the Pope's infallibility. Hmm. And he said, I couldn't reconcile it. And frankly, it's not reconcilable, but at the time he said, I couldn't reconcile it because what I found out about Pius the 12th, um, Pope Pius XII's role in uh, uh, during the during the Second World War in Germany and then in Rome. He became he be, he did, he was a, a papal nuncio, ambassador from 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 Rome in Munich during during the 30s. And then mo- a lot of us know the story of what happened to the Jews in Rome when he was pope. And he said, I can't believe, I, 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 I mean, maybe I had a bunch of other reasons why it was hard for me to understand this infallibility thing, but knowing that, I cannot support that teaching of the Catholic Church. And at the same time, I'm still a Catholic. And I'm thinking, I'm listening to the guy behind me, and I'm saying <laughs> to myself, I know who this is. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
when Francis was elected, I was like, oh my God. And I, yeah. I ran into John Bauer actually at lunch. I said, wait, do you guys love this Pope as much as I think we do? <laughs> Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, we like him. We yeah, like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this, that one of my favorite words is Bashert. Yeah. If the Catholic Church ever had a Bashert, yeah. it was his appointment yeah. uh, to, to succeed Benedict. And more importantly, to succeed John Paul II. And uh, part of the Catholic background, too, because you have to, it has to be brought up, you know, is this whole... Uh, sex abuse thing, you know, with yeah. priests, right? And and that's the in a summary deal, the the responsibility for not doing what should have been done from the Pope's level of things, right? right. Was mostly borne by uh, John Paul II, who mm -hmm. was Pope from seventy eight, I think, until two thousand five, and then and then. Benedict inherited it and did some things right and some things good, but there is a very strong thesis that says the reason he resigned, now remember, he's the first pope to resign I in know. 800 years. The reason he resigned is that he understood how impossible this corruption had become yeah. and, and how, it, how, much, how hard it was to break it down. And so he resigned. And did, did, did Francis uh, participate in some of it? Yeah, you could say that. But the point is, Francis finally just, he he finally said enough. Exactly. You know, it, it, so. I mean, when he came in, he was so clear about it. And he was consistent about that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit, because we have made a journey together. And I know you did with Rabbi Edelheit. Um, to Jerusalem and the Galilee, um, and we went, you know, in Nazareth, and and you went to Bethlehem. So, um, and I have been there since. So, I really would love for you to give that synopsis of Jesus's story. And that whole question of his death, because we sat in or stood in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I was honored to go into um, the place where the tomb is with you as a witness again, and very powerful moments. I'd been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre many, many times, but I never waited in line to go to yeah. see them, <laughs> because I always felt like, as a Jew, I would take up a place in a very long line. But with you, yeah. I just was there. And so you invited me in to witness a very special moment for you. And it was very powerful for me to be a part of it. So talk about Jesus and the history of Jesus in Jerusalem, in the Galilee, in Bethlehem, and help temple members and and listeners kind of hear hear that that history because jews don't always know it so well and i've learned so much from you i've been there five times why have i been there five times and uh it's the one place in the world that i would still go back to i i don't need to go anyplace else i mean i'm it's not like oh yeah I went to I went to uh, uh, New Zealand uh, last summer and I went to Australia and I went to South Pole blah 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 
it's not this nothing it, it's a pilgrimage mm-hmm. it, it's 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 going to the place that is the foundation of your faith mm-hmm. it's going to a place uh the visual impact is profound because you've been hearing stories for years and years and years and years and you've heard you've gone through the gospels and you know if if you care to and you should if you don't and you're a christian you, you better know a whole lot about the hebrew scripture because you know same deal i mean it's where it happened the visual adds a level of substance that yeah, you just can't see it in a in a tv documentary you know? and walking up the southern steps of the temple where jesus walked and and where you know abraham and sarah and so it's like it the proximity brings closeness and the yeah. history is felt in your legs and in in your heart it's, it's a powerful place at least the last three of the five times i've been there is you get out of the plane in tel aviv and you head straight north up the coast yep uh, you go up to Caesarea mm-hmm. and, and see the, you know, in fact, which, why do you go to, why do you stop at Caesarea? Because you're looking at Herod. Because if you don't know Herod, you don't know Jesus. Because you mm-hmm. got to know that history. But the next choice is fundamental for me. And Nazareth, well, but, but the, the point for me, and it's really, really important. I believe in a strong, uh, appreciative faith that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If somebody drills me to the wall on that one, in terms of the real history of what you believe, I kind of think he was born in Nazareth. You know, you, the, the gospels tell the story, Luke tells the story of the birth and Matthew gets into it and all that in order to connect it up with Jewish history. Right. And Bethlehem is being a place where, you know, if the Messiah is gonna come, it's gonna be born there. I, I can go for that. That's just wonderful. But here's my point. The hidden life of Jesus of Nazareth is what, for me, is so utterly fascinating because there's virtually nothing that we know about it. But he was there from post-infancy, probably into his late 20s or early 30s. And you live in Nazareth. You were dirt poor. There was no cosmopolitan thing about Nazareth. It was a backwater. And that's where he lived. So I'm just utterly fascinated with being there. And there's one place there that I've always been fascinated with and that my friends I took there, I think they're kind of shaking their head. Why why do you care about this place so much? There's a big Catholic church there. It's about the... uh, Annunciation. It, it, it celebrates when Angel Gabriel talked to Mary and said, you know, you will bear a child. It's fine. I kind of think it's a little bit of Disneyland, you know. A half a block from that place is a well. It's still there. And like any ancient city, the well was a very important place. It was the local post office where everybody got together and exchanged the gossip and you found out what was going on and you might go there twice a day and by the way it was women that would go there with the jug of water they didn't have schools and stuff so your little kids came with you to the well that's the image that that is so powerful for me when i when i go to the well i just say what did this kid learn 
she taught him his faith. How did she do that? I have strongly believed that the faith that she taught him was essentially found in the Psalms. They're beautiful. They're poetry. It's all there. The Rachamim is all there. You know, Christians uh, got used to, it was really dumb, but for some stupid reason, they talk about the Old Testament God as comparison to the New Testament God. And the New Testament God, you know, I'm talking to Jewish people now, the New Testament God was very much into Rachamim and Chesed. The Old Testament God was very judgmental, very strict, uh, and all of that. It's all baloney. It's the other way around. And it's in the Psalms. It's the wallpaper of the Psalms. Rachamim, Mm -hmm. compassion, love, kindness, forgiveness. It's, It's constantly over and over and over. And what would you, how would you teach a kid if you had to use some format? Well, I suspect at least you taught him the scripture. You taught you taught him the, the Psalms. And that's where this, the heart, the soul, the body of this little kid learned his Jewish faith from his mother, probably from his father, stepfather, whatever you want to call him. I was just reading about this the other day. Um, can you read that? Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. The Galilean yeah. Jewishness of Jesus. Okay. This is written uh, by a friend of mine, Bernard Lee, who's a priest, he was a scholar, did a lot of his theological work at the University of Chicago, a brilliant guy, just died about a year ago. Hmm. And he's some one of these people that got me thinking about Judaism to its roots. Hmm. And it's is his belief. And and what I'm reading in here is there's not a lot, there's no no nothing to tell you why did he go from Nazareth up to the Canaret, up to the north end of the Canaret, and basically live the two, three years of his adult life in Capernaum. You know, we don't know why he made that trip. But I think a pretty good reason is, is that Nazareth is kind of an armpit place to live in the first place. And if you go up to the Canaret, you got palm trees, some nice soft breezes, um, some good food. Uh, you know, I'd probably go to the Canaret if I had to live in Nazareth for the rest of my life. But anyway, he went there. Yep. And and um, and that's where he chose uh, to do his teaching and healing. There's two things, two very critical things. He taught and he healed. He healed and he taught. And what is the core of what he taught? The coming of God's kingdom the coming of God's kingdom. And what did that mean for him? I'm talking about the kingdom here. What does the kingdom mean that he, what did he mean by kingdom of God? I don't know what the Hebrew words are for that, but in other words, Isaiah chapter 60, okay, chapter six, the spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to announce the year of favor from God and the day of vindication by our God. That's what he meant. He's talking about justice. He's talking about rachamim. He's talking about compassion and kindness 
and love and forgiveness. He's also talking about the covenant. There's some rules here, you know. They're not to be disregarded. There's a lot of good wisdom here. You got to do all of that. That's what he did. And this book that it confirmed for me, this is so simplified, but the reason he was killed is because he constantly talked about the reign of God. Well, that's sedition to the Roman ear. And he, he basically came to Jerusalem and taught. And I think it's historically correct that he did take on uh, the uh, money changers in the temple because in order to buy a small bird or a, right. or a, a lamb or whatever, you had to have shekels, which is Jewish money. Right. And he, and you came to town with Roman money and you had to exchange it. And, you know, human experience is such that uh, if you got the so-called country bumpkins coming in with a buck, a dollar, giving it to you for shekels, you give them back 50 cents worth of shekels. Mm-hmm. And, and this, you know, this is about human nature. And basically he caused a small riot. And uh, you didn't do that in Jerusalem, especially, especially during high holy days. You just didn't do it, Passover. Because the Romans, uh, Pontius Pilate lived at Caesarea and he came to town twice a year, came town for the fall, high holy days, and he came to town for the, the late, late winter, spring holy days. And he brought 5,000 troops with him because all hell was going to break loose. What do you call it? Insurrection. Insurrection was very much uh, uh, going to happen. And this leads me to another thing. This is what you and I have talked about. And it's very, very important. And it's also brilliantly dealt with in this book. I don't think that if there was anybody on the Jewish side of things that was involved in his in his Roman execution, it may have been the high priest simply because that person was was appointed by Rome, not within the Jewish uh, life. If there was any thing it was that because that that person had to practically be in bed with Rome in order to have the job there is no case I don't believe for the trials as they are portrayed in Matthew Mark Luke and John between Caiaphas and and Annas and uh, Pilate and you know it's just like they're taking them around to all these different trials. Now, don't forget, this is, this is what, this is Passover. I mean, this is the Shabbat. It's Friday. They don't have time to do this stuff. Matthew's gospel talks about the Jews yelling, crucify him. What? What are you talking about? Why would they do that in the first place? You know, it makes no sense. Wow. Well, then how did it happen? How do you find that in, in, in Matthew's gospel, you know, you have that, uh, that chant by the Jews, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Actually, that's in John. Then in Matthew, you have may, may, his, uh, may our sins be on us and by our children's children. How did this happen? By the time the temple's destroyed in 70 CE. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's the end of, of uh, Judaism from the point of view of temple worship. And it, it's the, the final beginning of rabbinic uh, Judaism. Right. It's also the time when Christianity is starting to get some legs. 
and they're very, you know, and those legs, they get those legs and it's pretty much across the trade routes of the Middle East and it's in Rome. And it's simply not cool to say that Rome killed Jesus. Mm. It's not cool. And so a narrative is developed. And by the way, there's a lot of animosity going on in those first three, four, five generations of how Christianity emerges from Judaism. And it's not pretty. You can pick any religion that you want. It's got its own version of it. Shi'i and uh, what is it? Sunni and Shia and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It became convenient for the Christians to develop a narrative that blamed the Jews hmm. through a very elaborate kind of trials and all that kind of stuff to, for they're the ones that essentially teed up Jesus to be killed. Well, and we know that the gospels are over, you know, they represent and take a snapshot of particular um, historic periods of time. And by the time you get to John, John has a yeah. theological lens. He is not talking history per se. He wants to make the distinction between Judaism and, and Christianity. Right. And he is going to do everything to, to mark that difference as plain and clear as possible um, because it, it advances the 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 agenda of of the establishment or continuation of Christianity. So, you know, I think that's the part that Jews don't always understand is not only the history that the gospel is talking about and when it was written, but then our understanding right, of what right. it's trying to say. And there's there's a lot of arguments that say none of the four gospels are meant to be historic. There are kernels of history here and then he puts a lot of narrative around it to, yeah. to, to carry it along i was born in 1941 in 1942 the 1c document came along it was the formal meeting of of the high nazi order of the final solution how to do it and i often think about that is is that i'm i'm like this little kid in Nazareth, you know, who's waddling along with his mother learning about whatever. But I'm thinking those are my formative times. And I'm thinking this once thing's going on, the final solution, and we know, sure know about that. So why the point is, why is this important? Because it was so horrible and so awful, the final culmination of 2,000 years of, 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 of essentially blaming Jews for the death of Christ, that, that, that that's enormous. In fact, that's the background of why we have the, the country of Israel. And I think that um, the other thing that was so amazing being in the Galilee with you and being walking around Jerusalem, going to those powerful places, of the stations of the cross with you, going to the church, Anne's church, that, yeah. um, you know, like, and, and being in those places of um, of incredible importance is it history? Is it legend? Is it myth? It's your myth. It's your myth. It, but it's, it's your but all founding of it is, story. That's right. All of it is important, and um, 
you know, I think that it informs uh, and to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, not with a Jewish group, but with an interfaith group was very profound for me. It yeah. was it was enlightening to experience it from the lens of another person and why it is from somebody who believes in this is their sacred space, their sacred moment. Um, just like when we were outside Al-Aqsa Mosque and outside yeah. the Dome of the Rock with the Imam and to see it through his eyes, it's, it, that is what interfaith work is at its best, right? right? When right. we was... can journey sitting at the wall, hopefully gotten my perspective of what it means to be in that holy place. So it is that ability to... Um, to mentalize another person's experience and to let it inform your own and to stay strongly connected to your own heritage. I mean, it is a, it's, it's a bit of a complicated juggling act. And, you know, it takes a sophistication that one has to work really hard to build the muscle of. Because as human beings, we are so easily brought back to splitting and thinking that it's a zero, a zero sum game. That if somebody else sees, if somebody else is right, then I must be wrong. Right. And that just is not how life works. And it is not, I don't think, what God, why God keeps trying to tell us and, and, and give us that lesson over and over and over again, and we keep missing the point. Um, it's so frustrating. So how but, do we not split? When I got into started going into this really deep into interface stuff, I mean, why am I doing this? Time before I got to the Basilica, uh, I uh, I had been a priest from 1967 until 91, and I had been involved in a lot of things, and I had peripherally been involved in interfaith, peripherally. You know, you kind of said, well, I got to, you know, I'm going to get involved in this food program with the yeah, Methodists yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, all that stuff. But I finally, I finally got serious about it. And what I found out, I was afraid. Not so much. Ju Judaism didn't. Judaism did not make me afraid about anything. It was more my Protestant friends. And because there's been a lot of animosity between Protestants and Catholics. And I thought, if I really start listening to these people, mm -hmm. I'm going to lose my faith. I mean, I had real fear about that. And what did I find out? If I really, really, really tried to listen to these people very deeply, my faith is going to get stronger. I'm going to learn from them. They're going to fill out. They're going to fill out my story. And so the irony is, is that I wasn't going to lose my faith, but in fact, you know, by be, by becoming Jewish to the degree that you might allow me to say that, by becoming Jewish, my faith has just become so incredibly rich, it's unbelievable. Well, because because you have to, as my experience was, right? So the senior rabbi at Temple Israel always did the interfaith stuff. So I was at Temple Israel for 14 years and I wasn't the senior rabbi. And I, you know dabbled in it when Rabbi Edelheit was out of town, I would come and do the class with you or, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. But for the most part, it wasn't in my portfolio. And then I become the senior rabbi in 2001 becomes part of my portfolio. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not well grounded in this. Um, right. 
and it be, and and what I learned was that the more I told my Jewish story, the more I could hear my Christian and Muslim colleagues' story, and that being able to tell my story in relationship to that to those stories was incredibly powerful for me. And I had to think about things in my own story to explain them in relationship to people who had a different faith. And it strengthened my own faith. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, let me tell you, we're getting close to our time here. You got to draw the line on the time. But that's okay. Me... We're good. We're good. But I want I do also want to ask you one other question. But I love your whole Jesus story. Go ahead. You tell well, me. Well, let me just tell me one other one other thing yeah. about going to Israel with uh yeah uh, uh Rabbi Eli and I went with 74, can believe this, 74 people from Temple Israel and Basilica. Okay. And not one person was late for the bus. <laughs> It's a it was, miracle, a Hanukkah it was, miracle. It was a miracle. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, one, one, one memory, maybe the most outstanding memory of that trip was going uh, to walk the way of the cross. They call it the Via Crucis, the way of the cross. And it goes down right through the Arab uh, market, uh, mm -hmm. downhill to uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I'm, I'm taking them through the stations. What is the way of the cross? They have, they have what they call uh, 14 stations. And these are places where Jesus stopped. And they have little markers on the wall that talk about that. And as we're going along, there's a, a woman. Her mother was with us. And she was, I think, in her 80s. And we were going along. And there is there's a, one of the stations is that when Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem, and uh, because they would follow him, that's part of the gospel, is that all his male followers deserted him, and all the women stayed with him. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We could go into gender politics on that one. Yeah, yes. yeah. So anyway, Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem. There's a, lot, there's a, there's a form of Christian music that goes, it's, goes back into the, you know, the secular world. It's called Stabat Mater. Stabat Mater means... The, the standing mother and and it's a focus on mary being with the women and she's she's terribly distressed because she's simply walking with her son on the way to his execution and the song goes at the cross her station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping close to Jesus, to the past. And this older 80-year-old Jewish woman said, yeah, I know. There have been thousands of Jewish mothers accompanying their sons to their death. That's what she said. Hmm. The irony of that statement has been profound in gluing me together with my Jewish roots. Because those thousands of Jewish women accompanying their innocent children to their deaths were largely because of Christian interpretation of the Jewish ro role 
in the death of Jesus. Very powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Very, thank you. Always, always wonderful to be in your presence. And I guess the last question I have, which is hard to move from that moment, but um, the question of the journey you've taken as you've given it to us from your family into the priesthood and then back out again. And perhaps you could get, and I was very honored to be actually, um, I think with you the very last morning that you, we were doing an interfaith dialogue class for um, a Catholic high school. And it was during that whole process, it was a three-part series. And the last one, you were said, you know, this is sort of, my last piece as a priest and um so talk to talk to our listeners about that journey and and really what it looked like perhaps um and and how how it's been for you we still call you father o'connell let's just tell you that but i know i'm not supposed to but you know the archdiocese doesn't have anything over me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, if you do, uh, you learn that as if you do that, then I call you, yes, my daughter. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I, I really believed uh, that there's a, a way of tracking my story as a, a young person that, that drew me towards wanting to be a priest. Uh, it was mostly about a couple of priests that I knew as a, as a young person that I had, that I had great admiration for. In terms of who they were and what they did and what their role was, and that that I think was was more than a lot of things responsible for drawing me to becoming a priest. I spent um, 50 years as an ordained minister. I would give nothing of it away. Uh, it was an unbelievable and an incredible opportunity in life that I think uh, I think it confirmed uh, that I probably had the right vocation. Uh, and so I look back at that unbelievably. I basically, I was 75 years old. I retired in 19 uh, or in 2015. And uh, this is going to sound so corny, but for the first time in my life, I'm looking into the future and I don't know what, what I'm going to do. And at the same time, I knew Sue, who is my wife. I, I had known her for, uh, for a long time. I met her to her first husband, who uh, was married back in 1973, married at the time to uh, his wife, Sally, and they had nine children. And uh, about the time I met that family, uh, she, aged 44 at the time, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and she died two, two years later hmm. uh, in uh, 1975. Uh, um, and I, I, I followed that family through that two years. And the, 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 the mother was essentially dying that whole time. And I watched those kids. I watched their father. And then she told her husband, Larry, that when, when she was gone, he was to waste no time finding a wife and a mother for our, for our kids. And, and Larry was a very mindful guy. I mean, he, he was an attorney and, uh, 
he literally went out looking and there's a long story about that. I won't get into it, but he met this uh, woman in Chicago. Uh, she was 30. He was 50. Uh, she was, had never been married. She was working in the stock market and uh, he asked her to marry him and she did. And she did miracles with the, I watched her, you know, I watched her with these nine kids. It was unbelievable. Either one of the nine kids or one of their spouses or 27 grandchildren or whatever. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Uh, you know what she did. Mm -hmm. And she and Larry had a great marriage and he died in 2001. And uh, I worked with her uh, at the Basilica and she was um, very instrumental in starting the Jeremiah program. She's just unbelievable. Okay. So anyway, there, there she was and there I was, and it was in the fall of 2015. And uh, I thought about it and prayed about it and, I decided somewhere in the late fall of 2015, I'd ask her to marry me. And I did. And the first words out of her mouth were, how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> You're a priest. <laughs> I said, well, I am. But I'm, well, I'm willing to stop being a priest if, you, if you'll marry me. And she said, yes. And it's been great. It's been wonderful. That's really, well, you know her. I mean, yeah. and, and the wonderful story about Rabbi Zimmerman <laughs> is that I got married three times. My first marriage, my first marriage was in Chicago with uh, my family and her family. Uh, I think there were 12 or 14 round tables of 10 each. And one of those tables was my family and the other 13 were her family. <laughs> it was in one of our son's backyard. Then my rabbi friend said, come on over to temple. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you our marriage blessing. <laughs> so, so we went over to the temple and you preached a wonderful sermon, invited us up on the bima, and gave us this wonderful marriage blessing, which really still to this day we cherish. And finally, the Catholic Church uh, uh, made a formal declaration that I was uh, laicized, which means I was reduced back to the laity. And I had my final, my final, the third wedding, my, my friend, Father Malone, uh, uh, did the officiated and there were six people at that but we love that ceremony at temple that was the right place everyone loved being there you are a part of us always and will be and we treasure your friendship and we treasure your leadership in interfaith work it's there is no one like michael o'connell as far as well, we are concerned you're very kind, Rabbi, and uh, I cherish our friendship, and I look forward to more of it. It's wonderful. Thank you, thank you, and we will see each other soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Temple Talks. Any comments or questions can be directed to tmoss at templeisrael.com, and I will make sure that they reach their proper destination. We're so glad to have reached episode number 10 and hope you've been enjoying our series. If you have any suggestions for guests, we'd love to hear it. As always, thanks again for listening.